Hello and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co-hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers, and individuals in this space. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities, and happenings between the UK and China, what that means, and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. Hello, and welcome to season two of the Beijing to Britain podcast. Uh, as the introduction said, this is your host, Sam Hogg, although we will have to update the podcast introduction because my co-host, Steve Lynch, is now Steve Lynch MBE. Congratulations, Steve. Thank you very much, Sam. Yeah, no, absolutely delighted, humbled, honoured, everything in between. You should stand up next time we come to <laughs> do the podcast. Yeah, viewers, listeners won't be able to see me right now, but I'm actually standing to attention and I will be doing so yeah. for the entire podcast. Um, <laughs> do you get to go and meet the king then, Steve? Is that how that works? I've just found out that I will be going to Windsor Castle to receive the MBE. So I'll be doing that in mid-March. So cannot wait. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really pleased for you. And I think it's worth reiterating that Steve has been given this MBE for services to British nationals in China. I think um, I don't want to put words in, in the British government's mouth, but I think it was particularly for your work during COVID. Is that right, Steve? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, you know, maybe this is a serious point. It's a relationship worth fighting for. What we try to do specifically with the British Chamber is, you know, stand up and support British business in China when it was a really difficult period and support the community when it was a really difficult period, especially during COVID. So for me, it's an incredible honour, but I know it goes after my name, but there's a lot of people that have contributed to, to what we did in China. So I'd just like to thank them without turning this into the Oscars. Um, there's a lot of people who, who yeah, genuinely thank you for everything you've done and to help me and support me and, you know, the business community. It's, it's important. And as I say, and this is the whole point of this podcast, right? There's, mm. there's a lot more debate, a lot more nuance that needs to go in and the, there's areas that we need to discuss publicly. So maybe we should get on with it, Sam. A hundred percent. I mean, that was, I'll just wipe the tears away from my eye. But that was very <laughs> beautiful, Steve. Thank you. I can, you can put your notes down now. I've seen you've written them there. Um, great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think the way we're going to, having heard some feedback from our listeners in the first season, we're going to be leading our podcast episodes by discussing the agenda in advance. So I think we'll briefly run through that if you're happy to do that, Steve. But before we get to that point, we will, we will just to let you know that at the very end of this podcast, we're going to be hearing from Tobias Elwood MP, who is a Conservative MP, and he used to chair the very influential Defence Select Committee. And um, we're going to basically we, we we spoke to him about China's strategic aims in the world as he perceives them, and it's a very useful way, in our view, of getting a gauge on where a centrist Conservative MP, who is interested in foreign policy and foreign affairs, currently sits on the China question. But before we get to that stage, Steve, could you run through the agenda for today's podcast episode? Absolutely. So we are recording this on the 12th of February. So to all of our friends, uh, it's happy Chinese New Year. So we're going to discuss a little bit about Chinese New Year. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then we're going to basically pick up where we left off. We've we've missed two months, Sam. Season two, we've had a gap of two months. So Mm -hmm. we're just going to cover everything in between. You know, there's a few things that have happened. And then we're going to look forward. So kind of some of the major stories in 2024. You know, we try to cover that in, in our prediction episode, but in the space of a month, two months, so much has happened already. So let's start. Chinese New Year. We are celebrating the Year of the Dragon. I was very fortunate on Saturday to bring in the Chinese New Year with some friends in Chinatown, and it was absolutely carnage. 
busiest I've ever, ever seen it, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, what about yourself, Sam? Did you did you celebrate with some dumplings, some baijo? I celebrated with some dumplings, uh, not in Chinatown. I was in South London, but it was a, I, I mean, I actually was with all of my Hong Kong friends and it, it feels very weird celebrating it with your Hong Kong friends outside of Hong Kong, but London is not a bad place to be to do that. So Chinese New Year in China is essentially, well, in the world, it's the biggest human migration on the planet and it happens annually. Um, mm. So for three years, there was COVID-19 pandemic, uh, self-imposed restrictions on travel uh, in China. So the restrictions were lifted on the 8th of January 2023. So I'm not sure if the last four years have been the best gauge of Chinese travel. But when you start to look into the numbers, they are genuinely phenomenal, like hard to believe. And so that's why we thought we'd do a bit of a quick fire question and answer when it comes to uh, Chinese New Year tourism and travel. So this one's to you, Sam. In the Mm -hmm. period... Uh, which is about three or four weeks of Chinese New Year. Um, how many domestic trips in China, according to transport officials, are predicted during Spring Festival? Wow. Um, I have no reference point apart from the population of China. I, I think there must be f- 500 million, half the population travels to and from places, maybe. So maybe unbelievably, it's 9 billion. What? <laughs> which means there's there's far more travel than just going back and forth there's seeing aunties and uncles and distant relatives and distant Whoa. family so nine billion in the space of three to four weeks and if you were to then say another guess sam mm-hmm. how many of those would be on the road network so of the nine billion how many people how many travel journeys would be on the road network i think okay wow nine billion maybe Eight, no, six billion? Close. 7.5 billion on the road network. Okay. And it's predicted between 500 and 600 million people on the rail network, which is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of people moving about. If that was in the UK, that would be countless years of delayed traffic and delayed railways. So that's that's very impressive. We'd be on strike, so don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So as I say, it, what, once I started looking into the travel figures for Chinese New Year, I just wanted to look in some of the tourist figures in general. Mm. And as I say, it's been quite difficult because of the COVID pandemic. But previously, mainland China has the largest outbound travel market in the world. So again, Sam, quick question. Mm. In 2019, how many mainland Chinese tourists travelled outbound from China? Crikey, I tell you what, if it's 9 billion traveling internally <laughs> and there's a population of i maybe 100 million 10 million i 10 i'm going to go with 15 million actually 155 million outbound trips <sighs> so just to put that in kind of monetary value 255 billion dollars in travel spending you so you can imagine how much that impacted global gdp when the chinese were not traveling Right, now let's flip it around. So inbound, so again, COVID restrictions, and I will reiterate, self-imposed COVID isolation Mm -hmm. um, meant for two two or three years, it was really difficult to get in and out of China. But in 2023, how many inbound entries do you think were recorded? 2023, I think, given, as you say, that was towards the end of zero COVID policy and a lot of people hadn't been back, maybe... Um, 100, 100 million. 
So it's 35 million. Okay. 35 million. So I was actually quite, so I was actually quite surprised it was as many. Oh yeah. But as you can imagine, you know, restrictions lifted, people wanted to rebound and come in, but it's still really challenging to get to China, you know, Mm. not just because of the issues with, with China in regards to COVID, but also the Russian Ukrainian war, Israel Hamas war. Mm. It's really difficult for for these carriers to come in out of China. So it it was a challenge. And just while we're doing it, Sam, final statistics, how many Chinese students in the UK? Oh, wow. Um, You should know this. I should know this. I'm going to say it's fallen and I'm going to say it's 72,000 students. Am I far off? So it's 150,000 Chinese students in UK universities. Okay, so yes, I'm not only am I far off, I'm less than half of the way off. So that is really, really impressive. Please come to me for your consulting needs. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it just demonstrates just the, the level of Chinese travel and how much that impacts global economies. Yeah. You know, when we start to talk about you know, the sheer scale of, of, of China's tourism levels. Of course, that's a, that's I mean that's the GDP of several small nations combined mm. in a in a three week period. That is absolutely um, remarkable when you think about it for a second as well. So that was just our quick Chinese New Year quiz. As we say, two months, a lot's happened. Um, I think probably the big one when we're talking about UK China relations has been the Taiwan election. Mm-hmm. And maybe if I just hand over to you to, for a bit of an update. Of course. So you know, last time or one of the times we spoke previously, I had just come back from Taiwan. It was a couple of weeks before the election. And what's happened since is that uh, Taiwan has gone to the polls, as you say, and they have voted to return the DPP to power for an unprecedented, I think it's the third time. It, what's, what's been interesting is I think there was a, a view in Westminster or a, a, an expectation, a fear, I should say as well, that the Chinese government would react to the DPP returning by ramping up action, ramping up the rhetoric, you know, pushing into that gray zone type type movement stuff. And actually, what we've seen so far, and with the caveat that this could all lead up to a May, you know, his, his arrival speech, uh, Lai's arrival speech, we've seen so far is quite restrained from the Chinese side. And the view that I think we came to with Trivium in our last note was actually it's because Although the DPP have returned to the, the governing party, they've returned with only 40% of the vote for their presidential choice, and they've, they've lost control of the legislative yuan, so they're no longer holding the equivalent of China's parliament as a majority. And I think maybe the CCP calculations around that are, do you know what? That's, that's fine for the moment. That being said, uh, it's really important to caveat that it is just too soon to know. And I know that's a very eye roll reducing phrase, but it is just too soon to know. I think from the UK perspective and for policymakers, one of the things that we've flagged repeatedly, Steve, that's worth keeping an eye on is election interference and manipulation through social media and media. Because we, at some point in this year, will have our own hair-pulling-inducing election. And we need to be really careful about how foreign states and foreign governments and foreign groups are going to be manipulating people's basic views. The Taiwanese on their side have published data and have briefed diplomats and briefed journalists around what they perceive to be election interference. So well worth digesting that stuff. Great result for Taiwan, regardless of who wins, because it's an unbelievably impressive show of democracy, actually. You know, the way they count the votes, the way that the whole island gets involved, the turnout is really, really impressive, a testament to democracy. 
when we think about elections, especially when Taiwan, we think about foreign policy. Mm-hmm. But so many of the issues were fought on domestic policy. A hundred percent. As they will be in the UK, as they will be in the US, as they will be in India. You know, it's domestic first and then foreign policy second. A hundred percent. And, that, and that, that is a point really worth reiterating. I mean, I went for dinner with a lovely crew, crew of uh, local Taiwanese, including a teacher and, and some others, and uh, someone who worked at a consultancy and that sort of thing. And they, they were saying, obviously, we have this extra foreign policy stuff with China on our doorstep, but we can't afford to live in, with the rents in Taipei. You know, the, the, the union stuff isn't that good. Our working conditions aren't as good as they could be. And, you know, you speak to anyone our age in the UK, what do they say? Well, London's too expensive. We've not had an increase in wage com- compared to inflation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So foreign policymakers and, and po- policymakers generally need to be very cautious about viewing these elections through a foreign policy lens. They are domestic elections with a massive foreign policy element to people like you and me, but not to your average voter necessarily. I suppose if we do look at the sort of the general population and certainly some of the headlines that have dominated the media, Mm. um, I think it's been relatively worrying around some of the rhetoric in regards to the military. I have seen the expression third world war brought up in the last two or three months, quite a worrying amount. It's a really acute observation. And I think what I would, my view on it is, I don't like seeing just media coverage talking about third world war or new cold cold war it's very loaded language unless they are going to be it's not necessarily the media's job to do this but it's the politicians job to say okay we're going to prepare as if this could be the case because it's very easy to hedge on oh i think there'll be an invasion of taiwan or whatever because no one wants to argue with you really and if it does happen then you can have the uh, you can say i said this you know that's that's useful political capital but you need to also be saying i think it's going to happen and here is what we are going to be doing to make sure it doesn't happen mm-hmm. and you know you see it all the time with ukraine right now there's a reluctancy to actually send funding or to send weapons to ukraine it's been held up in the u.s system or the european system so it's all well and good saying for the media to say and them to get happy you know politicians to add to it but what are you going to do to prevent that from happening is the harder test i think mm-hmm. So before we move on to updates from Parliament, because you are the man to come to on that, um, I think I've got to put my hands up and say, I think I got it wrong around David Cameron. I thought his hire or his position was going to be a very domestic focus. I thought this was a domestic audience around an election, Mm -hmm. uh, which I still think it is Mm -hmm. in regards to a certain type of politics in the Conservative Party. But it turns out I think there's six or seven different families nowadays uh, in the Conservative Party. Um, However, I will say as Foreign Secretary, it it seems on the surface he's done a pretty phenomenal job. Essentially, he's the Prime Minister in everything other than the UK. Mm -hmm. You know, everywhere around the world, he is such a heavyweight. He has the relationships, he has the experience, the seniority, and he is really, um, you know, engaging all over the world. You know, he is literally on the front page of every single newspaper on a weekly basis. At our last podcast, we talked about, you know, sort of maybe stars of 2023 and the relationship. And I did say, you know, James Cleverly, you know, he did a great job as, as, as Foreign Secretary. But I think we are seeing a very different type of Foreign Secretary and David Cameron, a real, real heavyweight. And I think that's he is actually shifting the dial on lots of foreign policy, which has really surprised me. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are, Sam. I mean, it's a very timely observation because we have some analysis in this week's Beijing to Britain looking at where David Cameron, Lord Cameron, has been in his foreign secretary role. And you're right, he's been responding to two crises, the Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the situation uh, occupying the Israel sort of Gaza conflict right now. So he's been out to Qatar, Oman, Israel, Gaza, Egypt, all these places, the Palestinian uh, occupied territories, 
trying to push his diplomatic messages out there, which is great because, as you say, in everything but name, he's basically the prime minister representing the UK's interests out there right now, while Sunak has limited foreign policy interest. The, the analysis we feature in, in, and why it's relevant to the UK-China space is that actually that that's all fantastic, but we have not seen the foreign secretary visit any of the Indo-Pacific nations yet. And the Indo-Pacific has been signaled out specifically by our integrated review as a place we need to focus. It's a place where our future allies are, our current allies are, our partners are, got huge economic benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was having a really interesting conversation with a diplomat the other day who said to me, one of the easiest ways you can win political capital and political goodwill is to have proper bilateral meetings, not just a country's leader meets with your deputy minister in a foreign office, but proper person to person contact. And, you know, it's one of the things they talk about in business the whole time, too. That face to face contact goes a long way. You get a lot of goodwill from it, too. So I do hope to see Cameron extend his trips a bit further towards the Indo-Pacific. There's talk of him visiting China before the election, which may well happen. But I do I do share your view, Steve. I think people wrote him off from the beginning or they came to actually a lot more of a harsh view than you did. And I think he's proved them wrong in a lot of ways. So while we're literally on this topic around foreign policy, uh, let's talk about Labour. I think on the China front, you're still seeing many of the same problems that people levy against Labour when it comes to China, which is actually what what separates you from the Tories, uh, from the current government. And they'll have to answer that one in the run up to the election, not to the general population who won't really care. But and I suspect where you will see Labour talk about China is they, they might use the attack line, something on the lines of the Conservative Party, the Conservative government sold out national security to the Chinese Communist Party on, on these 10 issues or these 10 areas that that could make sense. But They'll have to start. Like a Daily Mail headline. Well, you know, you know how it works in Westminster. <laughs> You've written it for them. <laughs> Race to the bottom often. The thing that I found fascinating is there's been a, a lot of discussion around the CPTPP, which is the this massive trade block. Do you remember what it is, Steve? Comprehensive no, Trans-Pacific. No, don't, don't. Yeah. It bit, Nailed it. The, the long, thank you. Yeah. The long and short of it is it's basically this trade block that has a limited economic benefit currently to the UK. I mean, it's very small, but has a huge geostrategic implication for us and also has the benefit potentially going forward because it includes two or three of the world's fastest growing economies and fascinating markets. And one of the big angsts right now in parliament, like in the sort of group thing, parliament mind, is that we've just, we've just joined it and next in the queue is China and following China down a couple is Taiwan. And basically you have to meet three sets of basic rules to, to join. And there's concern that the UK will not say no if China gets to that stage, that they won't, it won't mm. basically say no to China joining, although China does, not, China does clearly not meet the CPTPP criteria. So you'll see a bit of backwards and forwards on that. Worth watching. Uh, it's sort of developing as we speak. We've been covering it recently in the, in the briefing. Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's a bit of a non-starter because I think there's about six protocols or barriers that China have got to go through. And I don't think they'll get through the first one. A hundred percent. So so that's, that's the view that I have as well. I, I, I have interesting discussions with people on the political side who think that the government of the day will fold under international pressure and basically say, or make clauses or make, make basic arguments that actually China doesn't need to meet these criteria for X, Y, Z reason, let's let them in. And I speak to the trade specialists who say, you're having a hypothetical conversation with me. We're not going to get to that point for the reasons you've outlined there. Who, who knows? Who knows? But we'll, we'll see what comes of it, really. Well, great. So we listened to Tobias. 
Tobias Elwood was until very recently the Defense Select Committee Chair of a Parliamentary Select Committee. Um, he was he resigned from that position effectively because he had a minor controversy when he visited Afghanistan and uploaded a video which some perceive to be praising the Taliban or, or making light of the situation there. I hold the view that um, I'm always pro people offering an interesting view or trying to stimulate or move the conversation forward. And I think uh, Tobias does an, an interesting job of that here. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Tobias, thanks so much for sort of taking the time to speak to us. As I sort of said to you before we started, if you said anything about China, I've read it in the, in the Hansard records. But for our listeners who are policy folk, who are in that Whitehall in Westminster, where do you sort of see your view on China being in grand strategy terms? I think that's the fundamental question that uh, we've not really come to terms with. There's always a lag between events, uh, whether it be an advance of new technology or an issue or a challenge, um, let's say creation of Facebook, for example, and the legislation that comes uh, that follows. And what we're seeing with China is the gargantuan rise, if you like, this huge economic leap they've done over the last couple of decades. It's happened fast enough for it to impact on all of us and for us to now have a discussion about it, mm. but slow enough that we've not really changed policy because it's the threat hasn't leapt out of us. There's been no acute event. We'll talk about Taiwan and so forth and, and, and other aspects, the, their uh, conduct during COVID mm -hmm. and uh, the, the lab in Wuhan. But ultimately, we're so ingratiated with China um, it's really divided opinion. And my concern, if ever anything, has been the absence of detail or yep. nuanced understanding as to where China wants to go itself. And the fact that this is going to be China's century, uh, whether we like it or not, their you know, phenomenal rise economically, militarily, and technologically uh, will very likely challenge the United States in our lifetime. You know, how are we going to cope with that? How are we going to manage that? And this idea that we're entering a new Cold War, uh, or indeed even a more profound splintering of the world into two spheres of competing influence, these are massive questions which we still haven't come to terms with. Yeah, if I can push you on that sort of splintering point, you are one of the more well-traveled MPs. You have an interest, a sort of stated interest, and a clear experience in foreign affairs, foreign policy, defense. To what extent has your view of how China is behaving on the world stage been influenced by your travel and discussions with interlocutors in other countries? So two things are happening roughly at the same time. Uh, arguably, one in the, the first is perhaps uh, a complacency by the West. Yeah. Arguably, after the Cold War, we got um, cocky in assuming that we established a global order that was going to last, last and longer than than anything before. Uh, all countries, including China, were going to uh, advance and mature into global citizens and participate in this new international friendly construct. And clearly it's evident today that there are an awful lot of adversaries that don't buy in mm -hmm. to this Western-led um, uh, set of rules and, and, and international standards. Where we, what we failed to do is to then uphold and defend international law, put fires out, um, but also recognize standards, not least economic standards, need to be adhered to. If somebody break, breaches them um, or somehow pursues deals outside that framework, we shouldn't provide 
latitude for for those countries to get away with it and then become dependent on them because they've become so large. And that's exactly what's happened with China. Mm. China has long had a strategy. And I don't think this is really the penny has dropped here with that as well. Mm. You know, to engage with other countries, to join its view of thinking as to how the world should advance uh, with less interest on human rights, less interest on transparency, more interest on long-term economic advance. And so this splintering of the world now is a reluctance, a gradual reluctance on, of, of the West to stand up and challenge mm. errant nations, whilst at the same time errant nations realise that we're not willing to stand up. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a great example of that. The calculation was made in, in, in Moscow, no doubt, that uh, will, will NATO retaliate? Mm. Will the West mobilise its military forces and put boots on the ground in Ukraine? And quite rightly, Putin calculated we won't. I've said that the high tide mark of Western post-war, uh, Second World War liberalism was Afghanistan. When we decided to depart there, a country that we ourselves invaded mm. without leaving it in, in, in a good condition, you know, with strong governance, without our own values operating and functioning, but handed it to the very insurgency that we went into defeat. Other countries around the world, our competitors will look, you know, looked at that and said, right, that's it. The West have lost its appetite to defend the international rules-based order. And what we're seeing is a gradual demise, a decay, if you like, of those rules and standards that have worked for so long. But do you think then it's also the case that a number of countries have looked at, as you said, sort of retreating Western standards as such, and also said to themselves, actually, China offers a lot of what we need. And, you know, we look around, we want a new hospital built, we need infrastructure built. Where are we going to get it from? Well, there's one there's one party in town. So I sort of wonder where, if tomorrow we were to publish a Tobias Elwood manifesto for change on a sort of world stage like that, what sort of answers would you have to that, that question? So you're absolutely right that this is the, the soft power leverage, the coercive power that China has managed to utilize. It, because of its gargantuan economic growth, it's been able to strike deals, offer, uh, offer deals often with authoritarian leading states with few questions asked about human rights, about workforces. In many cases across Africa, the actual workforces are Chinese who have been emptied from their own jails to then go and work on a one-way ticket. They're not going back to China. And we turned a blind eye to all this, partly because I think we wanted to engage with China as well. We go back to David Cameron having a pint yeah. uh, of, of, of beer. You know, that was all about wanting to befriend what was clearly going to be a major e economic powerhouse, the, the newest superpower on the block. China learned from Russia, from the Soviet Union and so forth, that it can embrace capitalism, but on its own terms. And it's now one of the most policed, you know, ruthlessly policed states in the world with, with limited freedoms, but enjoying access to the international markets. Now, how did it get to that place? How did we end up here where it's now able to openly challenge and advance a openly challenge our global order and indeed pursue an alternative non-Western interpretation and recruit other countries to join in its cause? And that's where the world could easily splinter into two. 
the West is shrinking and, and, and to compound matters within the West, populism is rising. So yeah. our ability to actually collectively make a plan to provide an offering to challenge authoritarianism is undermined by the fact that individual countries, not least the United States, are providing, are pursuing a more insular, populist, and certainly siloed approach to, to uh, international engagement. So we, we obviously have, as close as we have to a public strategy, which is the protect, align, engage pillars. And viewers can't see this, but I could sort of suggest by the, the face we've got going here that that might not be a particularly coherent approach um, in, your, in your eyes. But I think one of the things we often don't discuss is the fact that we are a P5 nation with China. And I'm keen to understand where you think we have potential points of leverage and how we can affect change in a bilateral case. Or is it the case that actually everything we do going forward needs to be multilateral as a Western bloc? Where, where do you sort of fall on those sort of out- outcomes and, and questions? So you can break that down. You're right. As a P5 member, there's a sense of duty and responsibility to firstly look at some of the challenges coming over here, uh, over the hill. And Britain's done this traditionally very well indeed. Yeah. Articulate the challenge and then offer a solution, not for us to do all the heavy lifting, but the convening power of bringing nations together to say, uh, let's deal with this challenge. And uh, th- what we have today is an absence of a strategy of how we handle China when they're going to be so dominant in, in, in across the areas. The difference between the Cold War that we're probably entering now, um, or in, but in denial to say so, compared to the last Cold War, is China's absolute reliance on international trade. Mm. You know, the Soviet Union was independent of the rest of the world. And actually, that's what brought it down, because this economy wasn't allowed to, to grow as much as it was spending on all its weapon systems and its whole uh, wartime uh, focused economy. But China, in order to to fulfill the needs of its its growing middle class and and all the other aspects of the, of this enormous country, requires trade across the world. And that, if we were to then be more robust about the standards that it must uphold or meet in order for that trade to continue. When you put, let's say, the G7 nations together with the EU, you, you, you more or less got half the world's GDP there. Mm. That's the big difference. That's the demand, if you like, the positioning, the starting point to say, China, you're welcome to participate in global trade. But under these terms and conditions, under this openness, under this accountability, you've got to join the Paris you know, Agreement of, of Nations, um, showing you know, openness in your finances. Mm. And you can't be exerting your military might in the South China Sea in your way. Otherwise, there will be consequences. And at the moment, we're just drifting. There is no collective either appetite or certainly no strategy to handle where China is going. And if you don't do something, I'm afraid it compounds. It ends up in an acute event or a miscalculation taking place Mm -hmm. um, whereby either America and and China clash directly or through proxies. So... If I could push you, what do you see those consequences as being? Sanctions, tariffs? How do you punish what you view as the, the bad behavior of China in these multinational organizations that has pledged to uphold standards in a Yeah, there needs to be off-ramps. I mean, partly yeah. the conversations that you hear, which are quite ignorant in some cases, I'm afraid, even in Parliament as well, yeah. don't understand. Everybody understands that we handed Hong Kong back to the Chinese. They don't appreciate how we got it in the first place. Yeah. You know, the opium wars, the... The, the century of humiliation. China remembers all this. Mm. You know, China, it wasn't until the 1970s that China took its place 
as a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council next to us. Uh, you know, we gave that seat to um, the Kuomintang, to the, the, the Taiwanese as, as, as such. And for many years, this tiny little island was a P5 member of the United Nations Security Council, mm. completely winding China up. So why on earth have you even kept us out mm. of the whole Bretton Woods conversations? They remember all that. We've forgotten. And in the 1800s, China was a grand superpower then, destroyed by uh, Western aggression over that century. And that's led to where we are today. So there needs to be a, a graceful way that all roads can avoid uh, uh, a world at war, World War Three. Mm. And when I say World War Three, I use that because everybody thinks of nuclear Armageddon and the Second World War. It'll be a world at war with lots of conflicts everywhere, often, as I say, through proxies, rather than one individual conflict around the world. To some degree, we're already at a world that's not at peace right now, are we? Far from it. Mm. There's so many uh, challenges around the world, but they're only going to accumulate. They're only going to get worse. And China will then feed or back sides uh, according to protecting the chunk of the global south that's now joined in, you know, as countries look or are forced or obliged to take sides in whether you continue supporting the West or you then, then tip to, to China. And as I say, if you're an authoritarian leader, siding with China, they can ask less questions about how you treat your own people. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the quotes I remember you saying quite recently is that behind Hamas sits Iran, behind Iran sits Russia, and behind Russia sits China. So is that would that be a fair encapsulation of sort of where you see the tectonic plates moving right now? That's exactly uh, it. And it's, you know, very, it gives power to Iran's ability to exert, you know, its confidence. Sending missiles into Pakistan isn't something I would have predicted. Yeah. It's doing it because there are uh, Sunni operators there that have an interest in, in harming the Shiite leadership in Tehran. But crossing a border with your missiles it, it, it is always unpredictable as to what the re response will be. I think you know, they've done a tip of that and, and that's it for the moment. But it shows the confidence of Iran that it's willing to do that. And ironically, who was it that sort of calmed everything down? It was China. Yeah. Came in to everybody, made the call, said, okay, let's, are we done now? You know, let's not see this escalate. And yeah. very interesting to see that it's not the UN anymore that's doing this bargaining. It's countries like China that uh, have greater ability to exert their influence to calm situations down. That's who many countries are now turning to. As the entire shift of, you know, of, of, of power uh, migrates to the east. Well, that's quite a useful way to segue into sort of the final part of this discussion, which is around China capabilities in the UK. And you've touched on uh, briefly the fact that sometimes the parliamentary debate is actually out of sync with where experts have the views and where foreign yeah. policy analysts have the views. So uh, that to me is, a, is, a, is actually a major issue that doesn't get looked at enough because bad briefing leads to bad policy, which leads to bad strategy. So where do we start to improve both China capabilities investment in the UK and, and sort of where the government and parliament gets involved? And, and more importantly, how do we get people in the UK foreign policy, well, Westminster establishment to think yeah. how other countries think? Because there's no point projecting our own values or our own uh, strategies onto different countries. You know, we can briefly touch on your trip to Afghanistan as an example of seeing a very complex place in motion. And then trying to portray that in a you know minute and a half video or whatever. So how do you get to the crux of these complex issues and then form sort of good strategy out of that? Yeah, yeah I mean, it, 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 I don't think we're going to, be able to answer it though uh, in, in the short space of time. 
that there needs to be recognition of, of, of what China is, is going to do if unimpeded of where it will go. And I'm afraid you, you, there is a, a, a challenge there, uh, a danger as to where it wants to take not just its, its, its own country, but other countries too. Mm -hmm. And it's doing so because nobody is preventing it uh, happening. In the same way Russia is doing the same. Both countries respect power and they respect strength. But both countries will take advantage and exploit weakness. So the question is then how do we stand up in a cognitive way to where China is going, but allowing access and offering, as I say, to say, well, there must be a way that our two models, our approach can exist. If China wants to operate, you know, we will always pressurize you know, how it treats its own people. Mm. And we would hope that eventually that would mature and advance in the same way you know, arguably did in across Europe, including Britain, you know, yeah. from, from rather archaic ways that you know, kings and queens ran us you know, for, for many centuries. But ultimately, when that bleeds across to other nations around the world and challenges you know, our global order, that is a big problem. That is yeah. a big problem. And therefore, it then requires a stock check of, of you know, how our uh, global order runs. The international institutions that are tasked with, with holding countries to account, the United Nations needs to be updated. Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about permanent membership. Therefore, setting a, a new set of rules is, is rather important. I have a theory, and I wrote it in a piece um, not long ago, that there are, you know, the victors write the rules. Mm -hmm. So you go back to the Treaty of Westphalia. Um, rules are written, and for a couple of generations, people abided by them. Then there's the another war chaos, Treaty of Utrecht, I think, came next. Napoleonic Wars, the Vienna Congress came next. That lasts you for a little bit, and then turmoil ensues again. First World War, Treaty of Versailles, that didn't last too long before we had World at War again. Mm -hmm. Then we had Bretton Woods and, and, and all that, the United Nations. And we're now getting to the end of the life cycle of the set of rules that were set up in the 19, in 1945. Now, arguably, the Cold War was another major landmark too. But we've not upgraded them for our modern era. You know, the the non-state actor, the technology, the um, the new alliances that are actually forming as well. And if we don't do it soon, what will happen is that the rules will fall apart completely. We will be back at war, and the new victors will rewrite the new world order. Now, at the moment, we are distracted, as I say, by a rise in populism in the West, particularly the United States. When Trump come back on yeah. us with elections, arguably we've in the last four or five years, we've been distracted since Brexit by more domestic matters. Yeah. We're starting to rekindle that with what we're doing in the Red Sea and indeed Ukraine. But ultimately, there's some big, big questions as to what do we do about China. Tobias, I would thank you very much. So, Steve, I was obviously in the room there. What, what, do, you, what do you make of it as someone who was objective and standing away? One of the things I find really interesting coming back to the UK is... I, I worry about us being involved in an echo chamber, an echo chamber when it comes to foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So factually, one in eight people live in the global West. Seven in eight don't. And so they have a very, very different worldview to what we have here in the UK, the US, Australia. Um, and I think that's really important when we're thinking about foreign policy. Sometimes we want to deal in black or white. And I think there's often somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. quite quite hard, uh, maybe for policymakers, it's quite hard for politicians. I think it's very hard in today's society when people want to see things 
you're either with us or you're against us. Yeah. Um, so I'm not coming down on this either way, but I just, I do think we need to appreciate there are other opinions and views from countries in this world that sometimes want to be with us, sometimes don't want to be with us. You know, we can use India as a perfect example in that, you know, mm. they can engage with us, but then they're part of the BRICS. And then sometimes they're part of dealings with China and then sometimes they're not, you know, so. No, it's, it's a fair point. I, I think, you know, one of the things that I thankfully will never have to do because I'm not a politician is to try and tell a story of foreign policy in a way that succinctly gets across what I'm trying to convey um, without being too reductive. And I think, mm -hmm. to be honest, most politicians fail at it because, as you say, the world is not split into goodies or baddies, to, to be jovial or like Western, even the Western bloc versus the Eastern bloc or global South, whatever you want to say. Because if you think about the Western bloc, we have a whole bunch of vested interests playing against each other. Europe is a bunch of interests playing against each mm. other. So I, I do feel sympathy for people trying to convey grand strategy on a global scale. And there's only so far you can go with saying, you know, the axis of autocracies or Iran is backed by X, is backed by Y, is backed by Y without getting to the point of reductiveness. So I, I, I think it's a real struggle for politicians to convey that point in a way that keeps people who work in this space on board, to be honest. Um, yeah. and, and also to keep people, as you say, that if you're a, a middle power, um, or you're an Indo-Pacific power, it, that's not necessarily how the world looks to you at all. And so how do you then empathize or sympathize or agree or disagree with that, with that view? Yeah, 100%. So Sam, we've got a few more minutes and I think there's a couple of things we need to wrap up. One is Trump 2.0. Mm -hmm. Second is the Chinese economy. And we've got two minutes. So let's, let's just get, it should be quite simple actually. Right, so it, as at the moment of recording, it does seem like it's going to be Trump. Yep. As the Republican candidate. Yep. Um, there's been a lot of speculation very, very recently around Biden, but it does seem like a, a Trump 2.0. We predicted it would be a Trump 2.0. Yep. What I find quite interesting is China's response in regards to they've been very, very muted because they want to keep this sort of positive relationship, positive messaging post the Xi Biden meeting, you know, quite clear and they do not want in my opinion i just don't think mm -hmm. they want china to be used as this political football uh during during the election but it does seem like trump will be coming in i think the way he'll handle china if he does come back in is a lot more planning in regards to what's happening right now and it seems you know i've heard reports that he'll be putting tariffs on you know chinese imports for 60 percent mm -hmm. um so you know what what's your thoughts what's your perspectives on this so I, I actually hold the view, as predictions go, that Trump will return um, and we'll get back in. I, I think that should be baked into a lot of people's thinking now, and they should be preparing for that outcome. Um, it's focusing on Trump specifically, a lot of the stuff I read from places like the Wall Street Journal or from places like the various sort of institutes or think tanks that are starting to fold in under him, under him would back that view too. I think we're going to see some very aggressive trade policies. I think we're going to see lots of language around the EU and NATO partners not having picked up their slack for defense budgets. And, you know, some of that is not without credibility, you know, and without credit. Like a lot of places should have invested more in their defense and, and in their industries there as a percent of GDP. So I, I think we'll see lots of that. What I'm worried about, and it goes back to your earlier point around echo chambers, is that we have a group of people who will be planning policy and planning ideas who do not want Trump to come back and therefore do not want to think about Trump coming back. Well, that's all well and good, but you need to make strategies for it. And if your 
strategy in the UK is, well, let's say you're the Labour Party and you're talking about having close ties with the EU, that's fine and dandy, but the EU over the next year is not going to be the EU that it is now. By the looks of it, we're going to have a number of more right-wing governments coming in who may well find themselves more ideologically aligned with Trump than they do with Keir Starmer and David Lammy as foreign secretary. So that, that's my view on that specifically. And then the second point on the Chinese economy, I'm going to throw that back to you actually because that's your specialty area versus mine. But in a, in a one sentence, Steve, what is up with the Chinese economy? <laughs> so I've um, recently or had the opportunity to attend, I think it's been about four speeches I've heard from the Chinese ambassador, Ambassador Zhang. And he has basically said, look, the Chinese economy is doing gangbusters. It's at 5.2% GDP, uh, which is above the actual target they set in March of last year. Uh, but on the flip side, look, we've heard from Rhodium Group, it's at like 1.8%. You know, my opinion is, it, it, or my view, it's probably somewhere in the middle. And as we heard from your look, it, it's sub-economies. Some are doing really well. Some are doing really badly. And we obviously, many of us will have, have heard about the liquidation of Evergrande and the ongoing property crisis that is sort of engulfing China uh, and becoming an even bigger, bigger problem. So the Chinese economy has been growing at plus you know, 10% for the last 20, 30 years, it's just not going to see anywhere near those numbers. And the Chinese policymakers really have to grapple with that. It's unclear, of course, you know, because the Chinese system is quite opaque. The opaqueness, I think, was once an opportunity. I think the opaqueness is slightly a risk at the moment. It doesn't mean that there's not opportunities there. It's just, it's a real challenge to get a read on what's the reality of China. And anyone who's lived there or worked there, engaged with China, knows that sort of, figures, statistics can be taken with a pinch of salt because, you know, they're, they're, they're a slightly exaggerated or, or sometimes. Um, mm. I, think, I think the big thing to watch out for and the big thing to be looking forward to is the two sessions. There's been an announcement that there'll be a new foreign secretary. So what does that mean? Who will that be? I think that's really important. I'm not sure how much of an impact it will actually have on foreign policy because I think that is really set by C nowadays. But it will be interesting to see who it is. And I think there is a lot of concerns by foreign businesses, not just British businesses, that there's this real juxtaposition between national security and the economy. Mm. And the economy is taking a backseat to national security. I think a lot of people are concerned about that. A hundred percent. And we've got some, uh, between us, Steve, some friends who are sinologists and who are good China economists who will bring on, I think, for a podcast episode, sort of unpack what happened for the two sessions, uh, unpack the run up to it and most importantly, unpack why it matters to you, policymakers, British policymakers, British CEOs, British think tanks and academics, and just uh, our, our international listeners too. By the way, shout out to our two Mongolian listeners. Awesome. Uh, good luck with your election this year. We'll be watching it very closely. Um, but Steve, <laughs> look, <laughs> thank you for, uh, for that. And here's to season two. I'm very excited to be back. It's great to see you through the screen. I'm... I'm really excited to be back. I think we've got a really ambitious uh, season two. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're looking to get kind of the top uh, politicians, business leaders, academics. Absolutely right. Okay, well, Steve, MBE, take care of yourself and I will speak to you next week. See you later, Sam. Normal person. <laughs>